Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So before we get into things today, I uh, just want to tell you about my new podcast. It's called Notes from the Field. It is a show about travel. And if you listen to the recent episodes of Cognitive Revolution, you will have heard me plug it already. And so I'll just say that it's a show that I've really enjoyed putting together. It reflects a, uh, a handful of travel essays that I've written over the past couple years, and I decided that the best place to put them as a collection was as uh, a podcast. And uh, I, I think it touches on a lot of things that, that resonate with people right now, especially with just that sense of getting out there back into the world and, and just missing seeing things outside of one's own work-from-home setup. So this week's episode is Hong Kong, uh, a place that's uh, one of my favorite uh, nations slash special administrative regions slash cities slash whatever it actually is on the planet. And um, yeah, it's an episode from when I went there a couple years ago and just talking about some of the things that I saw there. I uh, hope you'll enjoy it. And if you take a listen and like it, then uh, go ahead and listen to the rest of season one. Anyway, uh, my guest today is Susan Golden Meadow. Uh, she, her official title is the Beardsley Rummel, a distinguished service professor in the Department of Psychology. Uh, she's also on the Committee of Human Development at the University of Chicago. Uh, and so I guess um, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to her was that she is the 2021 awardee of the Rummel Hart Prize which is the highest honor in all of cognitive science. And I've talked to a couple Rummel Hart Prize winners on here, but basically if you make a big deal, a big splash sort of in, in cognitive science, it's the, big, it's the biggest award that you can get. So she's going to receive that uh, next summer at the Cognitive Science Society Conference. Uh, her, 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 her research that she's most famous for is on gesture. And basically... Uh, in widening our understanding of the, the sort of cognitive aspects of language to how we use our hands and our body to communicate. And this goes from everything from uh, sign language, which is a very specific kind of communication in a language in its own right, to just um, the way we augment our verbal communication with um, uh, you know, moving our arms and, and, and that sort of stuff. So it's a very interesting line of research, very influential. And uh, it was interesting to hear how she sort of came upon some of her ideas in there. So uh, another thing that was interesting to hear about was that the person who actually inspired her to get into language research was none other than Jean Piaget, one of the most influential and, and uh, important psychologists of the 20th century. So uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to Susan, and I'm very excited to share this interview with you. So without any further ado, here is Susan Golden Meadow. So the first thing that I want to ask you about is your last name. Yes. Golden Meadow has to be one of the, the greatest hyphenated last names of all time. So I'm wondering if, if, if your parents... Did they did they just sort of give each other a look and be like, we have to do this? This is not no. This isn't my parents. This is me. I'm gold. Okay. My husband was Meadow. Okay, uh, that's I'm... amazing. Is that is that was that the reason for the marriage? Did you feel like you were compelled to? Uh... <laughs> there were other reasons, too. Oh, sure. uh, but yes, no. He never took it though. 
He never took Golden Meadow, which I always thought was sort of silly because it was such a great name. He was just Meadow. That's his loss for sure. I think so. I think so. But, you know, my kids have Golden as their middle name, not as their, so they're Meadows, but with Golden as a middle name. But I agree. I think it's a fabulous name. And, you know, at first when I went to graduate school, I, after I got married and um, then went to graduate school, I went in as a Meadow. But when I wrote my first paper, I said, nah, nah, I got to be Golden yeah, and let's face it, who wouldn't want to cite Golden Meadow uh, as, as many times as possible throughout the throughout a text? Um, well, that's great. So, okay, so where where did you where did you grow up then? I grew up in New Jersey, um, close to New York. My father worked in New York, so we were sort of bedroom. It wasn't quite a bedroom community of New York, actually. It was uh, a little bit beyond that. It was a town that had some existence before the New Yorkers came and moved into it. Um, so it was a sort of lower middle class, blue collar town. And then all these, you know, a, a, some number of New Yorkers moved out into it. And my parents were among them. Yeah. And then, so what was, what, what did they do? Did I, I, it sounds like they probably didn't have a, an academic background. What is, what well, did that? Both my parents went to college. They both went yeah. to, my mother went to Hunter, um, and my father went to city. They're, they're New York kids. Um, my father was a CPA, a certified public accountant, and my mother was a teacher. Yeah. Um, Did they have expectations for you and your brothers and sisters were, were going to be? I don't know, actually. I mean, I think they wanted us to be well-educated and all of that. That's sort of part of the culture. Uh, my brother is five years younger. He, too, is an academic, actually. He's, a, he's a, in the medical school at Irvine, so we both became academics it's interesting actually uh, my brother could have uh, practiced medicine he's an md phd but decided not to practice and decided really just to do the research um, so we're both in that in the same vein interesting yeah do you think uh do you think that there was something there in, in the childhood that that gave you that sort of sensibility about the world and about investigating the things around you? Do you think that looking back that there was something like that present? It didn't feel like that. It wasn't like, you know, my father would talk about science all the time, you know, as my husband did, actually. My husband did that to the kids. Um, but which I'm sure they're going to be annoyed by and, and be like, no, we're going to go, we're going to go do something. Go do something else. Yeah. No, he, he uh, I, I think, I don't know why we both became academics. I mean, obviously there was a real emphasis on education and, and doing well in school and, you know, caring about all of that sort of stuff. Um, but I didn't feel, I certainly didn't feel like this was a, a calling in any way at all. It was serendipity. Yeah. Well, let's let's see if we can sort of wind our way through that serendipitous okay. serendipitous path. Then, so I guess I'm curious: when did you first start to get interested in language? Um, I think I've always been interested in language, but just because I think it's pretty fascinating. But I got interested in it scientifically when I went to Geneva. I spent my junior abroad in Geneva, Switzerland, um, where it sounds like you met someone pretty in terms of language study, pretty special. Yeah, well, so Piaget was there uh, and was teaching courses, and I did take courses with Piaget and worked with Inhelder, and um, I also worked with Sinclair, who was the person who did language for Piaget. Um, and I met another 
student at the time and Carmela Smith, who um, I worked with on a project that was really important to me too. I just got interested in science then, um, a junior already in college. And it was really the first time I thought, oh, this is really fascinating. I'd like to do this. So what was what was Jean Piaget like? Was that was did he feel like a larger than life figure at the time? Were you kind of oh yeah was it one of those things where you're like oh this is the real deal? What what was that uh, like? This was 1969. He was already a well-known figure. He had already appeared on the New York Times magazine cover. Um, you know, so everybody in the people knew Jean. Even I, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't sit in cl- small classes with him. I was in a big lecture hall with him. So I may, mostly saw him lecture. Um, and the way he lectured was he sort of read his, the book he was currently writing. Uh, at the time he was writing Mechanisms of Perception. So that's the book that I, that's the, the lectures that I listened to. Um, I had more intimate classes with his, with the other people within Helder and Sinclair and Hinbang and all the other Genevans. So he was kind of road testing his ideas on the on the students there. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. This is a European classroom. There wasn't a lot of discussion in these lectures. Uh, we just listened. Uh, I think he did have seminars though. But I was an undergraduate. I wasn't anything, you know. So um, I didn't take Piaget's course, uh, smaller courses. I took uh, the other courses, and then they gave us. They didn't know what to do with us. There were three of us from Smith College. I went to Smith. Um, there were three of us in this program, this uh, Genevan program for psychology, and they didn't know how to test us because we weren't. Part, we, they, they only had master's students, actually master's and PhDs, and we weren't even. We didn't even have BAs, so they gave us our own little private oral exams, which were incredibly stressful. <laughs> So I was sitting there with Inhelder trying to explain in French what Piaget was all about was pretty stressful, really stressful. You mean you only had to deal with the biggest concepts of, of mind and language and society in order to do that. So right. I can't imagine where that stress, where yeah. stress comes from. And not to mention the fact that particularly the first quarter, my French was abysmal. It got better, but it wasn't fabulous you know expressing these ideas in French uh in a language that was really not so my own language by any means it was hard to but I got better so the second quarter I got a little bit better but the part that really got me excited was the research that I did um I was excited about the ideas but I really liked doing research with uh Sinclair on language we did a project on language um, the relative clause. So what, I mean, so it, so, okay. There's the big highfalutin Piaget ideas. Great. But it's not, so the, but you liked getting your hands dirty and what you're doing. So what was the sort of, what was the tangible component of that? What were you looking at? What were you studying? What was the day-to-day of that, that, that excited you? How children understand relative clauses. Sentences like the cat pushed the dog that ran away. Uh, the cat that the dog pushed ran away. The cat, you know, those, so there are set, you, you, can, you can take a relative clause and you can put it in the middle of a sentence, it's embedded, and you can have it modify either the subject or the object. 
the cat that ran away or the cat that the dog pushed. So that's what we manipulated. And we were interested in how that affected children's comprehension. And so uh, you would you would come up with these different variations on, on relative clauses and these different embedded clauses. And then you would present them to children and test their comprehension. Yeah. That was the idea. As opposed to looking at, okay, here's a, here's a situation in which children are doing their thing. Are they using uh, relative well, clauses? Clearly in coverage. So it was a big team. Half the team was doing it in French. Uh, I was on the part of the team that was looking at children who are learning English. They were in the international school um, in, in Geneva. So they were learning English and we were looking at their acquisition of the relative clause, their comprehension of the relative clause um, of a period of time. Um, it was, and the project was very big and unwieldy. And my friend Annette Carmela Smith and I decided that we didn't like the way that it was being run in the sense that it, the, the study wasn't controlled enough. So we went rogue and we did our own little study with our own little sentences uh, that were much more controlled uh, and, you know, found some interesting things. And what did Sinclair feel about that when you, when you decided you were going to be a cowboy and go out there and do your own? I don't know. I don't remember it being a big deal, actually. So I think she was okay with it. You know, I had to submit a paper at the end of the year and have a little oral exam with Sinclair. And I think she was fine with it. I don't remember any repercussions. Um, so I think, you know, it was okay. But that was the moment where you were sort of like, you were presented with science and you're like, oh, I can do this, but I can do it better than, you know, whatever the, the version that was given to me. I can, I can, I can bring this up a notch. And then so that, that you sort of felt like you got some traction from that. And then in your senior year, you took that back to Smith College. I did, and I did my senior honors project, which was a uh, continuation of that. It built on that work. So Annette and I never published it, um, even though we thought it was pretty interesting. But we both went in different directions at that point. Um, and as she died uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, and when I went to visit her right before she died, I said, you know, we were we did really nice work when we were kids. And she said, we should have published it. So when they asked me to write a paper or do something for a book in her memory, I wrote up the work. Hmm. So I wrote up all the work on the relative clause and it is now being published. Annette and I are co-authors okay. in a book in her memory. Um, sorry, I missed that. Annette, who was that? Annette? Karmeloff Smith. She's a, actually a well-known developmental psychologist uh, in Europe. She was, it was in England finally where she, uh, where she worked. Well, that's lovely. Yeah. So, so uh, then from, from those sort of initial moments of, of success and feeling like, okay, this is going well, I'm interested in this. Did you go straight from, from, from that to graduate school? I did go straight from undergraduate school to graduate school. I decided that when was... I um, yeah. from Geneva that I would really focus on psychology and really take courses in psychology, even things that I hadn't been interested in, like physiological psychology, and that I would apply to graduate school to do work in um, language, language acquisition. That's what I wanted to do. 
And then did you, so why, why Penn? Did you specifically want to work with Lila Gleitman? Uh, or, or what was the, what was the sort of, was there a fork in the road there? Or was that, was, was Penn the obvious choice? Um, Lila wasn't at Penn at the time. Oh, really? Lila was a sophomore. She, um, she was at, uh, sorry, where did you say? Swarthmore College. Okay. Okay. Um, so I was in love with a man, and he was already in medical school at Penn. So we wanted to get married, and I convinced myself that Penn was the best place for me to go. Partly, I convinced myself by I asked my uh, my physiological psychology professor um, where I should go to study language. She had no idea. I mean, she didn't know anything about language or the psychology of language. Um, but she knew one person who studied language, and his name was Harris Savin, and he was at Penn. So she said to me, "Go to Penn," and that just you know, underscored my desires and it would fit completely with where I wanted to go. So I decided, okay, I'm going to apply to Penn. So I applied to Penn um, and I got in. I also applied to places in the area, to Johns Hopkins and to uh, Princeton and, and in it roughly in the area of, of Philadelphia. Um, and as it turned out, it was the best place to go to for my interests. It really- I don't think you actually could have selected a better place, uh, especially with, with, with what Penn would turn into. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it just turned into the best place to study what I wanted to study, in part because eventually Lila did come to Penn in a year or two. Uh, and the students, the current students who were there with me, were interested in these questions, too. Um, and Penn was just really about questions and big ideas and thinking, really thinking through why you're doing a study and not just doing a study for the sake of doing a study. Yeah, no, uh, part of, so this, what I didn't tell you is that part of this show is basically a, a showcase of all of Lila Gleitman's students, uh, which which speaks both to, uh, I think primarily to, to Lila's influence in the field because there are so many amazing people. I mean, you yourself are basically part of what is now a Rummelhart dynasty. So you have the Rummelhart Prize, the highest cognitive, the highest prize in, in cognitive science, which you are the 2021 uh, nominee for. And uh, I believe alongside Linda B. Smith, uh, who is also uh, a Lila Gleitman uh, pupil. And, and, I don't know if Linda would claim that she was a Debbie Kemmler sister. Uh, oh, maybe, student. yeah, maybe slightly, slightly off on that. Yeah, I'm um, not sure she would claim, I'm not sure that Linda would claim Lila as her advisor. Um, I'm sure that Lila had some influence on her, but yes. Um, but <laughs> but Lila herself won the Romo Hall Prize. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I also talked to Annie Duke, uh, who's now an uh, author and poker player. Uh, but back in the day, did basically like 15 sixteenths of a PhD with Lila uh, Gleitman. Yes, that's um, right. So a ton of, a, a lineage of delightful people. Yes. And, um, she was a delight, she is a delightful person. So yeah, tell me about that relationship a little bit. What did, what was your, what was your relationship to her? What was she like? What did you learn from her? That whatever comes to mind in that space of things. 
Well, I actually had two advisors when I was yeah. at um, Lilo advised me on language things, um, but Rochelle Gelman was my developmental psychology advisor. So I sort of was, did work in between the two of them. Um, and the person with whom I worked very closely was Heidi Feldman, who was another student. And the two of us just went off and tried to figure out what we were interested in. And we just, you know, we were interested in this phenomenon of deaf children creating language. So we just, we went out to try to get ourselves into the deaf community. We took sign language, we went to different schools, you know, we, we visited homes. We had no idea really what we were doing until one day we hit upon a family of, uh, a hearing family that had a deaf kid and we walked in and the deaf kid was gesturing up a storm and we thought, okay, we, we found what we're interested in. Um, and Lila was always interested in that phenomenon. It's just, it's sort of the kind of phenomenon you might imagine Lila would be interested in. So yeah, I definitely want to dig into the the gesture stuff and, and, and what was going on in your mind when you when you uncovered that, because it just, so it's not, definitely not my area of, of expertise, but it just seems like such a phenomenal topic because as your work points out, it covers so much of human communication. It's so rich, but it was perhaps me slightly overlooked by traditional linguistics, especially anything in the more, you know, formal Chomskyan tradition. And so you have the perfect intersection of this big, rich topic that hasn't been well studied. And then you came to it. And then you happen to find these amazing situations, like you're describing, of, um, forgive me if I get the details wrong, but basically... uh, families who are unequipped to teach sign language to deaf children. And so they come up with their own home sign. Uh, and well, actually it was, the families were pretty committed to teaching their kids spoken language. Okay. So, yeah, um, so yeah, help me, help me understand a little bit more about, so what are these situations? And then maybe if, if you can reconstruct it, take me to the thought process as you, um, uh, uh, and, and, and your and your colleague sort of start to realize, oh, wow, this is amazing. So, you know, I came from Smith College. Down the street from Smith College was a, a deaf school, Clark School for the Deaf, which was all oral. So they were teaching the kids how to talk, no sign language at all. But I visited that school and everybody talked about the fact that behind the teacher's back, the kids would be signing to one another. So this phenomenon of deaf children creating their own communication system was known in the world of deafness. So, and Heidi and I knew this too. Um, and what we were interested in is really studying it to see whether what these children do with their hands is anything like language. So we kept sort of trying to get into the deaf community and finally we found you know, this child who um, was gesturing we videotaped the child and found some others as well. Um, but that was the very beginning of understanding how, whether this communication could be considered language. I mean, it was clearly communication. There's no question they were using their hands to communicate with their parents. Um, but were they doing it in a way that was sort of linguistic in a way that looked like what other kids do when they're learning language. And that was our question. And so what are the key elements you look for there? Would it be like, you know, you were talking about 
relative clauses? Would it be something like compositionality and being able to insert uh, different symbols into other strings of symbols? What are the, what are the telltale signs? Well, the you, first thing we had to do was we had to figure out how to code this stuff. I mean, you, you know, we just didn't know how to even write it down. Um, we had big, huge books of uh, to try. I had these these little account pads from my father, um, and I'd write down things. I just didn't know what to write down because who knew what to look at? So we wrote down much more than we needed to, and then we pared it down so that we tried to figure out, you know, that they were producing uh, things that were working like words, and those words were combined together to create sentences. Um, and so you're right, it was compositionality was something that we were very interested in. And interestingly, in the paper that I just wrote with Annette, for Annette, um, I circled back at the very end of the paper and realized that some of the work that I did in HomeSign is very consistent with the theory that Annette and I were coming up with, or the explanation that Annette and I had for our own data for our relative clause data. So it really all came together in that paper um, in a way that I hadn't quite realized until I wrote the paper. Yeah. So you were interested in these deaf communities. You sort of insinuated yourself into them. And right. then you saw, okay, hey, so they're they're using this community form of communication. Let's figure out what the what's going on here, whether this is, is the same thing that we think of when we think of as language. And so when you talk about it being difficult to code, that means you have, you know, ten fingers that they're doing something with, potentially whatever's going on with, with other aspects of, you know, the orientation of, of their hands and arms, that sort of stuff. Facial well, expressions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's all the stuff that your body is doing. How, which and parts so you do you focus had, on? You essentially had to write down that language uh, from, from scratch, uh, almost like right. an anthropologist going into the Amazon right. and being like, "Well, okay, they got tones, maybe that they've got, you know, who knows what's going on with syntax," uh, and you you had to do to do to do that to that sort of. Thing. The advantage we had is that the children were children, and they were talking about stuff that's right in front of them, the here and now. Yeah. So that helped to anchor what we were looking at. And so one of the incredible things about this is that, so, you know, the, the long story, which I, I hope to unpack a little bit, is that, okay, this actually tells us a lot about language and thought and how we structure, you know, those sort of things in the mind. But it starts with going out into the world and finding a really interesting and unique situation where you look at what's going on and be like, wow, we really don't have an explanation for this. And I guess one thing that I'm wondering is that that seems like such an, an amazing opportunity. And it's, it, it feels maybe like today in psychology, that sort of thing is more difficult to do, where maybe because of pressure, maybe just because of, you know, where the field is at, it feels like, you know, uh, the, the temptation to run an online study that you can collect, you know, data from uh, a, a large N in the course of a few hours is is very high. Yeah. Yet, and so doing what you do, uh, you, what you did, seems like it would be inefficient for students today. Yet it was so core for how you, um, you know, came to study the stuff that you studied. So I guess how do you negotiate that in your in your own students or how do you think about that today or, or how would you advise people on that? I'm, I'm just sort of curious how you think that experience would translate 
to to the field of psychology and students and, and maybe PhD programs today? Wow, it's a really good question because there is so much pressure to publish. One of the things now, Pendant had no pressure on us, put no pressure on us to publish. If anything, you know, publishing too much was a little gauche. Uh, so that freed us up to just look at whatever we thought was interesting in a way that we thought was interesting. So I agree that it's really much harder now to just go off and do something because it's it was very risky. It might not have panned into it. Well, first of all, I did it with Heidi Feldman. So there were two of us. We had to get two dissertations out of this, not just one. And if they hadn't done anything, that was one dissertation. <laughs> you know, that wasn't two. So it was really risky stuff. Uh, and I don't know whether the field is open to letting people take those kinds of risks right now. I just don't know. Um, I you know, try to encourage my students to go after the questions they're most interested in. Um, but you don't want them to hang themselves. So I think it is complicated now, much more complicated. Yeah. And then so, um, okay, so you got your hands dirty. You had this amazing, you know, sort of, let's call it data set in front of you. When did you feel like you started to make sense of it? That you were like, okay, um, I, I, I kind of have an idea of what's going on here enough to start to, to, to tell people about what I found. What did that, when, when, when did that? I do remember actually being in my office one day at Penn and realizing that these kids were actually putting their gestures in a particular order. And I discovered the order. I remembered that sitting there, you know, coding the, the gestures and then starting to pull it together and looking, looking at it, thinking, oh, wow, that's really interesting. You know, there was something very structured about what they were doing. You know, you know, um, so that was sort of a, a turning point. And Heidi and I did write up some little papers or presented papers here and there. And the first paper I think we wrote was for sign language studies. Um, and then we finally pulled it together and put the stuff out in the, in the real world in a paper that, uh, in, in a science paper, actually. Yeah, so maybe let's, uh, can we touch on maybe a couple greatest hits? I know there's that paper and then there's uh, what your, I forget the name of it, but the, the nature paper that I really like. Um, from... Yeah, I think that's where we parents and the kids in China and America. Yes, the why people gesture when they speak, uh, 1998. So maybe can you touch on a couple of those just because there's so much okay. fascinating. So that's a different, that's, there are two nature papers. There's a paper in nature that looks at home sign. That's in 1998. Oh, right. That's really the parents. And then there's another one um, that looks at Chinese. And, it, you know, because one interesting question, we really, you know, we sort of entered this project thinking, okay, kids are probably going to structure their communication. People do. But we didn't necessarily expect the communication, the structure to be the same across kids. It was right. surprising to us that we found the same structure across kids. Um, and so that's one of the reasons we went and looked in China, because, or that I went and looked in China, because I thought, 
well, if this is really, maybe it's a cultural phenomenon so that all the kids in America go in this direction, but the kids in China, be for uh, whatever reasons, whatever sort of implicit deep reasons are structuring their things in different ways. But in fact, what we discovered is that they're all structuring it in the same way, which sort of speaks to something that's deeply cognitive uh, or human at the least. Um, so, I, and that was a somewhat surprising result. Um, that the structuring was the same across all of these kids. Right. So um, just to make sure I have that straight. So so you have two different populations of, of deaf children, each of them creating their own home site. So one of them is uh, American English speakers, the other one Chinese speakers. And the question is, so if we go look at the way they're structuring the things that they're creating, are they using fundamentally different structures? Maybe in the way that English and Chinese uh, have fundamentally different structures in, in some aspects of their language, yeah. or are are and what you found is that no, there's that they're actually using the the same thing. So so say a little bit more about what are those structures and what does that what does that tell us? Right. So one of the things we found is that they do order their sentences, the gestures. So for example, if you're talking about eating a grape, they tend to put the gesture for the grape first and then the gesture for eating after it. Um, a very simple little construction, but it was ordered nonetheless. It doesn't have to be that way in English. It's the other way we say eat the grape, not grape eat. Um, so little things like that. We found other structures. There are situations of embedding where they would embed something in a larger string. Um, so, um, and we found sort of uh, evidence of treating gestures that are functioning like nouns different from gestures that are functioning like verbs. So you have a noun verb category. Um, We've just gone through a whole list of different properties of language to see if we can find them in these deaf kids. If we don't find them, it's not particularly convincing. It, you know, it would be very interesting if they can't develop something. But of course, if they, we say they can't, it may be we just don't know where to look. The positive evidence is more convincing than the negative evidence. So part of... Uh, I think one of the beautiful things of this this program, as I understand it, is that, like you said, you kind of have this list of, okay, here are the things that we're going to look for that we think of as language generally, and we're going to look to, to find in what capacities they're pre present in, in these, these home signing situations, which are relatively informal in terms of, as opposed to something that's, that's highly formal, uh, like one of our, our languages that we use to, to, to communicate like we're doing now. And... The beautiful thing is that, yes, there's actually so much of what we think of as the systematicity and informality and, and flexibility and, and all these important, uh, amazing things that language do. These uh, people are creating this spontaneously in, in, in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. that, is that, is that, yeah. that's, that seems like a really fantastic uh, and just, yeah, I just think that that's a really delightful thing to, to see in the, the universe of the human mind, you know? I do think it, this is what's interesting about it to me is that when we communicate, we do it in a structured way. So it is sort of the outpouring of cognition at one level, but it's not everything we think. We do a lot of cognitive things that don't end up in our language. They, they're different structures. We, For example, um, we, we think about texture. We know about texture, but the kids do not 
convey information about texture, even though you could with your hands. They convey information about size um, and shape with their hands, which as all languages or many languages do that have classifier systems. But they don't include texture, which most languages do. I mean, I don't know of any language that really has a, a, a way of describing texture. So there are things that we know that we bring to language to structure our communication and things that we know that we don't apply to our language. So that's really interesting. It's something that is, yes, it tells us something about our minds, but it also really tells us about our minds when they are in the service of communication. It's interesting. Yeah, and so maybe, um, right. So you have your book, I think 2003, Hearing Gesture, How Our Hands Help Us Think. And maybe you could call that your, your the sort of centerpiece of your academic work, but it's mm -hmm. your most cited work. Um, so can you maybe summarize the argument of that book and if it ties together some of the stuff that we've been talking about the last well, few minutes? I think one of the things that we did in looking at these deaf kids is to try to figure out where these gestures come from. Um, because it, the kids are not doing it together. It's one kid in the sea of hearing people. So maybe the gestures that the hearing people produce are, you know, really serving as a model. Now we looked at the parents um, and looked at the kids and didn't find any good mapping between what the parents did as their gestures and what the kids did. We also wanted to compare these kids, deaf kids who are inventing their own sign languages, to hearing kids at the same age. And we compared their speech, the hearing kids' speech, to the deaf kids' gestures. But one of the things we didn't understand is what gesture is doing in a hearing kid or what gesture is doing in the parents. So this, the, the book that's, that is, it's about home sign, that's in the, that book as well, but it's also about what our hands do when it's not the primary communication system. So for the deaf kids and for signers, for sign language, your hands are playing the role of language. They are doing language. But for us as speakers, our hands don't have to take on the full burden. Our speech does that. And for sign, you know, there are, there are signs do that. What role does gesture play? And that was part of the question that we're interested in. When gesture, when hands either, you know, serve as a primary communication system or don't, what do they do when they don't? And that's all the work that I've done looking at gesture in relation to speech and it, um, what it tells us about learning and thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so does that, can you, are you, maybe you're the most qualified person to do this in the world. Are you, can you adjudicate how much of the Italian language is based off of um, uh, gesture and, uh, you know, versus, versus English? Is that really a thing where uh, you have these vast cultural differences between, you know, one group of people, uh, Italian speakers? relying much more heavily on gesture um uh, or is it actually no no no? we all do that and yes they maybe uh do it more dramatically and more flair but no that's actually a myth we all rely to the same extent on on gesture it's more the latter than the former i haven't done that work but people have cornelia Miller did some of that work marianne goldberg did some of that work they looked at northern european and southern european 
Um, and what they find is just what you said. Everybody gestures. They gesture actually at the same rate, but the Italians gesture big. They're much more out there. In addition, it, Italians have um, emblems, things like, okay, you know, th uh, thumbs up and okay and uh, things like that. And they have many more of them than some of the other cultures. So they do rely on those kinds of things. Those are more like words than anything else. But if you look at just the spontaneous gestures that co-occur with speech, the rates are not so different. So they don't necessarily depend on gesture any more than we do, um, but they think they do. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, there's a loose end that I want to tie up uh, that I think we we start get started on, but didn't. Was the was you said you you followed a man to to Penn? Was that uh, uh, the one that? Uh, you ended up taking a last name from, or did that? Yes, yes. we got married that? before we went to Penn. Okay, so that there it was, wasn't there yeah. wasn't a uh, a sort of uh, so that 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 ended up being a very good very good decision overall. Very good decision. It was a wonderful decision. Right. It was very very important to my intellectual growth as well as my personal growth. But he was yeah. there throughout my entire graduate school career, which, and graduate school's hard, as I think everybody knows, it's really hard. You feel uh, stupid, um, nobody, you know, and you don't really know whether you can do this. And he supported me throughout all of that. It's a wonderful, they're a wonderful teacher to my husband. So um, when I first taught my Psych 1 class, my first Psych 1 class, which I did with John Janides, um, I gave every single lecture that I gave to the students, I gave it first to my husband. And he would listen to it and help me say it better. And every single lecture it was not a bad course. God bless him. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned graduate school being challenging. And we talked about how you found this amazing topic while you're in graduate school and how things are different today. You've, you've had a lot of people come through your lab at University of Chicago, and a lot of them have been placed in great positions. So I'm curious to hear, what is the most common advice that you find yourself giving to students? And how do you start to help them think about finding a handhold on one of these big topics that, that's both something they can, they can dig into during their graduate studies, but also will open up into uh, a fruitful, career-long, you know, the topic of interest. Something that they want to really study. Yeah. I think what I try to do is um, get people involved in research, maybe more than one topic, and then listen to them when they talk about it. Because um, I think when you get involved in it, you can tell whether or not you like this way. There are many different kind of ways of doing research. This observational work is great, but it's not for everybody. It requires a certain amount of patience and perseverance and ability to sit down and code all of this stuff. It's sort of boring in its own way, different from constructing studies, which some of my students, students do as well. So they're different skills. So you can try both of these things and see which one really appeals to you and what you're good at and what you want to continue doing. So I try to listen to what they, how they react to the studies that they're involved in and figure out what they're finding interesting in it. So for me, looking at data, looking at the world really does inform me about what's interesting. There are other ways of doing it. You start theoretically and 
go down from there. But I'm much more of a phenomenon person. You know, I, I one of the things I did learn from Piaget is that the importance of looking at the world. He was probably the best observer there was. I mean, he's he was great at looking at what everybody else looks at and seeing what's interesting about it. Um, conservation, you know, the fact that kids will say this amount is no, not the same as this amount when you pour it, pour the glass in. Nobody, I mean, kids have been doing that for years. Nobody could figure out, you know, why that was interesting. And he figured out why it was interesting. Uh, he just knew what to look at, but he didn't notice gesture. Thank God too. Otherwise, really? uh, I guess so. Right. <laughs> um, if you know, in all that time, by Piaget, Yes. <laughs> you know, in his conservation studies, the, the way we discovered gestures and hearing kids is we, I would show all these conservation tapes to my classes. And eventually I'd really started looking and noticing that they were gesturing a lot. You almost can't talk about conservation because it's such a hard concept without gesturing. And so the kids are using their hands all the time. And then we decided that it was time to study that and to go about trying to figure out how to code it. So I'm interested, you mentioned listening a couple times. That seems, that seems like a hard thing to do, especially because faculty are under so much pressure nowadays, not even, not just graduate students yeah. and they have their own agenda. And also, you know, they, they're faculty, they, they know things and uh, they know the best way to do things. And uh, so it's easy to sort of get maybe a little bit stuck in that, a little bit complacent in that mindset and maybe not be as, as sympathetic. Uh, it's, it's just it's a difficult thing. To, I think truly listening to how someone's responding to something and thinking about how, how is this person going to best be utilized and also uh, most enjoy what they're doing. So I, is there any way to give an example of, of, of one time that that, you know, something clicked that you can think of with, an, with a student or uh, any other ways that you approach that? Is there anything that comes to mind like that? Well, I'm dealing, I don't know if this is a good example or not, but right now I have a student who actually is deaf. Um, and she's been doing, she's been doing sort of two branches of a project. One where it's much more experimental and we, we are designing studies that we give to deaf kids um, and to see, we're really interested in sort of where sign stops and gesture begins in a signer, particularly as kids acquire it. But we, she's also been looking at just naturalistic data. Um, and what's so interesting to me right now is I've been watching her and as she started with this, with the experimental, and now she's moving over to the observational. I think she's in the end gonna do her, her study there. And she's been doing both together and we were thinking oh we'll just make one dissertation over both of them but it's hard actually to combine those two together and what she's decided to do with i'm a little surprised that she's going in this direction you know i think it's great because she that's what she's interested in that's where she wants to go i mean you don't want people to do something that they're not interested in it's not good for them it's not good for anybody yeah very interesting so there's, there's another, uh, so you, I mean, you have, they're going to have to start minting new founders of the field in order to find new names to give awards to you because uh, mm -hmm. pretty much you've, you've gotten all of them, William James and 
rebel heart and, and all, you know, all these things and one of the uh i guess capacities of this latter stage of your career is um it looks like some sort of policy advocacy in a sense so mm-hmm. i read that um you work with the israeli council for higher education to evaluate mm-hmm. the field of psychology and behavioral science in israel and a similar thing with qatar um, so I'm just kind of interested to hear what does that look like? And then what are the, I guess, what are the most important steps that you see for some of these countries who are trying to up their behavioral science game to, to sort of achieve that? Yeah, I have done those things. I have not been an initiator in any of those. I've just been parts of the committees. And frankly, it they didn't go anywhere. I mean, what, what are, we had great recommendations for Qatar, but... I don't think they were taken up in any way. I think Israel is a little easier um, because I think some of our recommendations were taken up you know, by these these places. They're, both of them were very far behind in thinking about psychology. They were sort of into Freud, in, which is quite, quite different and really, really different from the way we're thinking about all of these behavioral sciences. So in that case, it just, we got to bring them into the, you know, the new century and get them here. Um, But I haven't done as much policy stuff as I think one could do, because at some point getting our findings out into the real world, um, to teachers, to school educators, is really important, particularly since I do work on learning. Um, So I've been trying to think about how to do that. it's not easy because there's a big divide between the world of what we do. First of all, when we find something in a, in a lab situation, it doesn't mean it's going to translate to a real world teaching situation. So we've been trying to do more studies in the classroom, things like that. Um, trying to do online studies, actually online instruction. Um, I think that's very a very important place to go right now because of this pandemic and everybody's looking at videos. You know, do you just have slides with no person there? If you don't have the person, you don't have the voice, the animation, or the gestures. It makes it much harder to, for me to follow a, a lecture if it's just slide, 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 and I don't get to see the the person who's, who's giving the lecture. Um, we don't know the importance of those kinds of behaviors. Um, we have, there's a little bit of evidence that one of my students, Brecky Church, former students, uh, Brecky Church, has that for kids who are in, who are coming from lower class homes, um, it may be even more important to have gesture there in their input. Um, there may be a, a differential there, and it may matter even more. Um, but these gestures are useful to understand things. So if we cut them out of our instruction, is that the best thing? So that's one of the questions we're now investigating. Cool. Yeah, that sounds very timely. Mm-hmm. So I want to get you out of here on time. So maybe I'll just ask one more question here. Um, and I guess I'm curious. So we, we touched on your, your, um, your 2003 book. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, how is there anything that you've changed your thinking on in the past couple decades or, or more recently than that? since you wrote that book, is there, uh, so, so definitely, I think we've touched on the broad strokes right. of, um, you know, what you think about gesture structuring, and, and clearly there's, there's a lot there to uncover and your research has done a lot to it. 
is there anything you've changed your mind about or been surprised about um, in you know in the last couple decade de- decade or so of research? Well, it's interesting. When I, I I'm on leave this year, and what I'd like to do is to write another book that is actually not uh, a little bit more in the um, accessible to the wider public range um, that really brings together these two lines of research. You know, I, I gave a talk at my university uh, called The Resilience of Language and Gesture, which really takes on both of those topics. And so what I'd like to do is think through just the question you've asked. You know, How has my thinking changed? I think it has changed. It's harder to say just right off the bat how it's changed. Um, but I think it has, and I'm hoping that in the process of writing this book, I will see it. I mean, as one example, we've been looking at HomeSign. We're very interested in, in what HomeSigners do when they construct this system unto themselves, but that's one person in a sea of people who are not really sharing the language. That's my dog. What happens when that language is shared? and then passed down from generation to generation. So we've been looking in Nicaragua to just see not just what happens when people contribute, individuals, but how does language emerge? So that question has become more important to me. Um, and the question of... Flaca, uh, stop. Um, the que- sorry. <laughs> the question of... Um, for learning, you know, gesture... I think we've discovered and we have pretty good evidence that it's a very good reflection of what we know. Even if you're not talking about that, it will reveal things about what the learner knows. Um, What we've been doing recently is trying to use gesture as a tool for teaching. And it seems to be a pretty good tool in that it leads to not just learning what you've been taught, but an ability to generalize what you've been taught and an ability to retain what you've been taught. So gesture is looking like it's a great teaching tool, at least for some concepts. So that's a direction. That's really not how things have changed, but it's how things have progressed. I think that what I'm gonna have to do in the context of writing this book is think about the question that you just asked. You know, are there, have I changed my deep beliefs over this time? I don't know. I will. I look forward to you finding out and then telling the rest of us what you've discovered as your answer. Great. Very fun. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to uncover there. I think that this is something that obviously academics have found very fascinating. And, and no doubt, I'm sure you've you know done a lot of work, like you're saying, with the practical applications. But I think lots of people will be really fascinated uh, by this because it's just truly... Uh, you know, one of these amazing human situations that's both sort of incredible in the concrete details of it, but then also very fascinating in the abstract. And so I, I think uh, I'm looking forward to to seeing what you do with this book. Me too. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you so much for doing this. This was uh, a, a great pleasure. And uh, it, was, it was nice to talk. Yes. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Susan Golden Meadow. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, uh, maybe you'll consider subscribing to Cognitive Revolution on whichever platform you'll be listening through. If you want to connect with me, you can do so by following me on Twitter at Cody Commerce or subscribing to my email newsletter, uh, which you can find at codycommerce.com slash newsletter. Thank you for listening. And I will be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.